to see China. He returned to Italy in AD 1295, so right before the turn of the century. He had been gone on a 25-year epic journey across Persia, Russia, the Himalayas, and then 17 years into China. Marco saw cities that made European capitals look like small villages. Kublai Khan's palace dwarfed the largest castles and cathedrals in Europe. In fact, his banqueting room was so massive, it could seat 6,000 people, each eating on a plate of pure gold. There was an opulence in China in that 13th century that was incredible. Marco also saw some of China's technological advances, like they invented gunpowder. Marco was the first European to eat the Chinese invention of food called... Called what? Takeout. Take <laughs> <laughs> okay. Come on. What, was it, what would you think an Italian, uh, the last thing you would think that China invented was pasta? Pasta. Did you know the Chinese invented pasta? The Italians made it famous, but, you know, that's where he, the first food invention Marco must have taken that back to Italy, and things have been great after that for Italy's food. Well, after staying for 17 years in China, he returned to Europe. And here's the thing. No one believed his stories. They thought that China was some mythical, exotic land, and they wouldn't believe his accounts. His family priest rebuked him for telling lies. At his deathbed, Marco was begged to recant his tales of China, and his final words were these, I have not even told you the half of what I saw. When we come to the book of Revelation, the same is true. We don't even know a half of what is really underneath and involved in that book. Revelation presents a reality that is greater than what we see, what we know. It's the spiritual world. It's the spiritual world where Jesus reigns. But we don't see it. So because people can't see it, they think it's not real. Because they couldn't imagine something greater than Europe. They couldn't imagine such opulence in a kingdom. They couldn't imagine all these things in China. So they wouldn't believe it. And people today do the same thing. We can't see it, we don't believe it but it's still real. It doesn't stop it from being true. So we're going to look at Revelation chapter 1 in these next eight messages, these personal letters to the churches that start next week. But first today we meet the church boss who wrote these letters. Revelation 1 provides great evangelistic discussion points. And so we're going to go through a lot. It's going to be a little more academic this morning than normal for me. But I want you to look at all of these things and go, yeah, I know that, Mm, I know that. But I want you to think, if somebody was going to challenge you and say, is Jesus really God? How do you know that? He never really claimed to be God. I heard that in the past week. Revelation chapter 1 is one of the best accounts of who Jesus Christ is as God. Revelation 1, beginning with verse 4. We're in the introductory part. And it says, grace and peace to you. From him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, 
and, and, that's a separate person, and, verse 5, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So in this greeting, the Apostle John describes the Trinity. Did you pick that up? Did you see the three persons of the, God, of the Godhead in there? Okay, so first we have the Father, who was, who is, and who was, and who is, is to come. That describes the Father's eternal existence. He is, has existed before time began. He's alive now, and he will be there when everything else ends. It will always be God. Second, the seven spirits before his throne speaks of the Holy Spirit. The number seven, in this case, stands for a number of wholeness and completeness. And so we say, here's a description of the fullness of the Spirit. Jesus Christ completes the Trinity picture. He's the focus of the rest of the chapter. So first, Jesus is going to have all these descriptions. First, he's called the faithful witness. Wouldn't mind having a faithful witness this past week in our national government, would we? That means that what Jesus says is true. You can rely on his word. So here we are. We live in this pluralistic society. It's confusing. There are clashing philosophies. One group says this. The other says that. It's polarized with all these ideas, all these debates, all these different value systems that that run into each other. And so in the end, you have to say, if you're out there in the, the world without Jesus, how do you know what to believe? How do you know what reality is? How do you know what is true? In Revelation chapter 1, it starts off with Jesus is faithful. He's the faithful witness. He's the one who will tell the truth. He's the one who is the reliable, unchanging, trustworthy reality. And in our postmodern world where it's like whatever you think goes, you need some standard. You got to have standards. Jesus Christ, God himself, is that standard. When Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead, some have wrongly said, well, see right there, he's firstborn from the dead. It says he was born. It means he's created. But that's not what that's talking about. It's talking about him as being primary in creation. Yes, Jesus was born of a virgin, but he existed before that. And so this does not prove that Jesus was a created being. It just means he took on flesh, and if he was born, then he died. And so it's his preeminent rank over creation. And you might say, well, how do you know that? Does the Bible make something a little more direct? Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 through 19 describes this. In talking about Jesus, the Apostle Paul writes, He is before all things... And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, notice this phrase, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And chapter 2 in Colossians will make a similar statement. All the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. So when you say in verse 17, before him, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In Sunday school last week, we had a a paper that talked about even on the atomic structure, you know, with the protons and neutrons, it's all, Jesus is holding all of that together. 
Jesus is sustaining the universe even now, this very second. And if he were to take his sustaining power off, everything would collapse from the, the subatomic, uh, subatomic level through the largest things that we know. So there is a clear statement of his Godhead in all of that in Colossians 1. So Jesus has existed for all eternity, but he was born on earth. And do you know he was the first to be raised from the dead? wasn't the first to be raised from the dead because we say, well, there were others he raised himself, Lazarus. But here's the difference. Jesus was raised from the dead. He took on a glorified body and that body would never die again. Lazarus' body would die again, the the widow of Nain, her child that was brought back, and the centurion, those various people we find in in the Old Testament when Elijah raised from the dead. Now, all of them went back to their same body, which would then die again. Jesus never died. So when we say he's the firstborn from the dead, it means he lives eternally. He has preeminent rank over creation. It's not talking about him having a beginning as a being. So verse 5, back to verse 5, it says Jesus is also ruler of the king of the earth. Now most powerful leaders today go, I am, you know, dictators especially, I am uh, in charge of everything. You know, Mugambi, Robert, who is uh, really powerful in Africa, a dictator, for many decades he couldn't get rid of him. And he would have complete authority, but you know, all of his authority comes from God. He does nothing that God doesn't allow him to do. It doesn't mean God approved of everything that a corrupt leader or any leader does. It means that they can't go any farther than God will let them. And so when Jesus is called ruler of the kings of the earth, it means their power is limited to whatever God allows them. And so he's the great king. He is the one day going to be the one who visibly reigns over all. And then those kings that didn't acknowledge his authority, that day they'll acknowledge it, but it won't be pleasant. So Revelation 1 describes more about Jesus. It describes what Jesus has done for us. So here's some traits. We're going to go to some other verses that describe more, but it's going to now stop and it's going to, in verse, the last part of verse 5, talk about not just who he is, but what he's done. So verse 5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So not just who he is, he's God, but look what he did. He came down. He became one of us. He loved us not just in the past when we come to Christmas season, we remember how much God loved us by sending his son, but he also would die for us. He would be resurrected. And why? It says in first, in, um, the first chapter of Revelation that he freed us from our sins. We couldn't do that on our own. Nobody but God can free you from sins. People can say, well, you're forgiven. But nobody can take away the guilt and the punishment and the consequences of sin but God. The Pharisees recognize that. When Jesus says, you're healed and your sins are forgiven, they go, no one but God can do that. This is what God has done for us. He's freed us. But it says, why? Why did he free us so that we could be a kingdom and priests? So there's a purpose You've not been freed and have sins taken away just so you can go live your life for yourself. 
It says that you have been freed, and now you're a kingdom and priest to serve God. A priest's work is to be a mediator with those who are alienated from God. So each of us are a priest. Did you know that you were a priest? You might say, but in my tradition, you had to be ordained. God's ordained you to be a priest, to go out and do the work of ministry. Don't wait for some professional pastor or minister or priest or whatever your background they called the people that were hired to do the work of ministry. You each are a priest. And that's a huge change from the Old Testament. It was monumental. People were just saying, how can that be? But you each are a priest to represent who God is to bring people back to him. And so that's your goal. That's why you're still here, to worship God and bring people to him. Verse 7 of Revelation 1 says, look, He, again referring to Jesus, is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. So if you were going to pick a theme verse for Revelation, this would be my choice. Verse five, Jesus is coming again. He's God, he's coming in the clouds and that's what the whole book of Revelation is really going to talk about is leading up to the second coming of Christ. Clouds are often associated with the glory of the Lord. They were a part of the visible display of God's presence in the Old Testament. The cloud of the Shekinah glory, the cloud that took the people of Israel through the wilderness. So clouds are an important symbol when they glow and they're like this when you look up. But this also goes back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Now look, Revelation says this, describes Jesus. Now look how Daniel described In verse 13 of chapter 7, Daniel says, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days. Notice there are two separate people going on there. And was led into his presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. So even in the Old Testament, you have these hints of the Trinity and you have a hint of who Jesus Christ would be. The Messiah isn't just going to be, you know, this this human person that overthrows a Roman government. He's going to be much larger. Layer upon layer in Revelation chapter 1 uses Old Testament scripture to present the case that Jesus is God and Jesus will return. And so when people make a statement, well, Jesus really never claimed to be God. He kind of morphed into maybe this idea of who he was. And all of that, I hope you can see when you look at Revelation 1, how false that is. He clearly claimed to be God. He knew he was God. And so this would be a discussion point. I'm reading a book right now written by a Muslim called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And in that book, he talks about his, oh yeah, John chapter 8 and 10, that meant this and that. And there's no claim in, in the New Testament that Jesus said he was God, but that's not true. Right here, he's claiming in John's revelation to be God and in many other places in the New Testament, in the Gospels and then of course with Paul. So, all these layers of Old Testament scripture used to prove that Jesus is God. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The Almighty. 
Alpha and Omega, of course, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And again, it stands for everything, everything in between. It's Alpha, the beginning, Omega is the end, and everything in between, that's who Jesus Christ is. And if that's not enough, notice that phrase that we saw in verse 4, who is and was and is to come. He clearly identifies himself as equal with God. He's eternal, he's deity, and it applies to the Father and to the Son equally. So both can rightly be called the Almighty. So again, a clear statement of who Jesus Christ is. So on your outline, if you're following along, number one, Jesus is eternal God. He is coming again. He's eternal God and he's going to come back. And his second coming will be different from his first coming. His first coming was to pay the price for our sins. He was gentle. He didn't fight. He did overturn tables. And that was about it. But this second Jesus is going to come back with, a, with more of the righteousness, holiness attributes on display than his first coming. So both are Jesus. He is eternal God. He's coming again. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York and an author, tells a story about a man who was opposed to to Christianity and he had this extra large, heavy, huge stone slab put over his grave when he died and he had these words etched on that stone. It says, I don't want to be raised from the dead. I don't believe in it. So when that man was buried, when they're putting the dirt over the grave, an acorn fell into the dirt. Well, you already know what's going to happen, don't you? So over the decades, a towering oak tree grew up through the grave and split that stone in two, that big slab that had these words, I don't want to be raised from the dead. It can't be possible. But imagine, here's what Tim Keller says, if a small living acorn has the power to split a huge stone slab, imagine what God's resurrection power can do in a person's life. Here's what Tim says, quote, When you decide to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit comes into your life. It's the same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead. Think of things you see as immovable slabs in your life. Your bitterness, your insecurity, your fears, Your self-doubts, these are examples of immovable slabs, we think. He says, those things can be split and rolled off. The more you know Jesus, the more you grow into the power of the resurrection. So do you notice John, he's like caught up in this greatness of Jesus, in the greatness of, of who he is, in awe of that Jesus. Do you have that same kind of exalted view? Of Jesus. You know, in daily life, I find it's really easy to forget the greatness of Jesus, the greatness of God living with me through my day. I get caught up, I get distracted, I got to do this, I got to do that. It's snowing when it's not supposed to be, and I sit and think about all this stuff. Too many other things seem more important at the moment, I forget. But how about you? How caught up are you in the greatness of Jesus right now? Is Jesus the boss of every part of your everyday life? Not just your Sunday life or your Sunday morning life, but the rest of the week when you go to work, when you meet your neighbors, 
when you play golf and the ball doesn't go where you want it to. Because Jesus, the Lord and greatness and boss of every little piece of your life. Because that's where John is. He's overwhelmed and in awe of the greatness of Jesus. Now we're going to skip to verse 12 of Revelation 1. John describes some more. He says, I saw seven golden lampstands. So now we're introduced to the seven churches. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Remember, we heard that expression in Daniel about Jesus. Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. So John's vision is similar to visions of God again in Daniel. And notice this is another description in in Daniel chapter 7 of the Ancient of Days. Verse 9, the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire. And of course, the Jewish people would have understood this as as God. We call him God the Father, but God, the only one God that they believed in. And yet this description is repeated in Revelation for Jesus Christ and not by mistake. So eyes like blazing fire refers to Jesus all-knowing discernment. There's no activity in our life, in our heart, in our thoughts that Jesus does not see. The feet of glowing bronze represent Jesus standing in the midst of the seven churches in judgment of refining fire. So every attribute of God applies to Jesus. His white hair, it's not a symbol of him being really, 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 really old. It's a symbol of purity. It's the brightness of his glory that's white and glowing. So those of us who have white hair don't get to see. See, we have hair like Jesus. It's like, you know, kind of a coincidence there. It's about his purity. It's about his power. It's his discernment. And then John goes on in verses 16 and 17 of Revelation 1 with some unique descriptions that are new in Scripture. It says, in his right hand... He held seven stars and coming out of his mouth with a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So you ever looked up at the sun? You know that you can't look at it for long. It would blind your eyes. And an eclipse is no more dangerous to look at a sun than when it's in its full glory. It's just that you don't think that. So you stare at it. Oh, wow. And then it burns your eyes because it's like looking on God's holiness. I'm convinced the sun sun is God's symbol of look at my glory. You can't look at it for long. Whether in eclipse form or its full brightness form without it harming you because his holiness is too much for us. So these seven stars at Revelation 1.16 are seven angels of the churches that will be coming up in chapter 2. And being held in his right hand is a symbol of, of God's possession and protection of these churches. We think, oh, he's going to scold these churches, but he's going to do it because they're his. They are his churches, like a parent with a child. 
you know, you love your child doesn't mean you don't scold them. And so you protect and possess them. You're jealous for making sure they're safe. But when we're safe in Jesus' hand, it means that no one can snatch them out of our hand. John chapter 7, I believe, said, you know, no one can snatch them out of my hand. You are safe in God's hand. Now, this sharp two-edged sword out of his mouth, that sounds kind of ominous, doesn't it? Now, you might be thinking, by the way, of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where it talks about the sword, the word of God is the sword. These are actually two different swords. They're two different Greek words. This is the long sword. You know, they had a short sword that they carried real easily. The long one was more of a battle sword. So in this particular context, this is the long sword of final judgment. God saying, I come with this long sword. I will judge the churches. Only I will judge these churches. Now, the short sword we are aware of is that little, the littler guy that Hebrews 4.12 says divides between joint and marrow. In other words, that Jesus can also discern the motives of our heart, what's in our heart. But this sword here in Revelation 1.16 is a sword of judgment, not just a sword of discernment. So in the face of this power and glory, what else could John do but fall at Jesus' feet? What would you do if you had seen all of this? Well, we too must come to realize our utter unworthiness. Yet when we come to worship, too often we focus on whether it pleases us and we express our dislike if the music is not to our taste. Instead, what if we were to see Jesus' glory and become overcome by the awe of God, coming here and just thinking who God is in whatever way that you might experience a particular song might not be the song that's your favorite. doesn't matter. You didn't come for a musical concert. You came to worship God. Amen? That's why we're here, to see Jesus, not to do a scorecard on, you know, was it hot enough? Was it cold enough? Too cold, too hot in the sanctuary? Did they put the right color of carpet in? We're here to worship Jesus, to be in awe of him, overcome. Verse 17, then he placed his hand, right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. We heard that before about God the Father. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. So he is the, who is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, also holds the keys of death, the keys to hell. Only God can stop death. Only God can stop hell from holding the souls of men and women captive. Only God can set us free to eternity. It's not just who God is. Look at all that he's done. That's part of the awe of this chapter. So number two. Jesus is God, calls for urgent worship. If he's eternal God, he's coming again. Our response, number two, what else could we do but worship? I'll close with one more story. There was a bank where there was some very unprofessional behavior that was revealed among four young employees and their older boss. The boss would take extra long coffee breaks with these four young employees and chat and gossip 
And then a new middle-level manager in her 30s was placed in the bank by the home office, and she was shunned by these five people. She walked up and tried to join the conversation. During a coffee break, the conversation would end. You ever been in a situation like that? Everybody quits talking when you walk in the room? doesn't feel good, does it? If she walked up and tried to join the conversation during this coffee break and it ended, you know, they just wouldn't talk to her. And so when she would leave, they would make jokes about her behind her back. They would laugh at the way she dressed. So it was obvious that they saw her as an intrusion that was unnecessary. Well, a few weeks later, things drastically changed in the bank. No gossip, no put-downs, no long coffee breaks. All the workers were focused on their work, and the older boss was removed. The employees addressed their new supervisor with a formal respect and some fear, because actually this new supervisor was no stranger. It was the same 30-something woman who had been shunned and mocked. The bank had hired her to be the new boss from the first day that she came on the job, three weeks before, but they hid her identity so that she could observe the work style of the team. How would you feel if you were one of those employees? You'd be pretty nervous. But it's a glimpse of how we live in this world. Jesus may not appear in bodily form right next to you, but he watches everything you do and say and think. When he comes to earth, he who is shunned, who is mocked, who is spit on, who is murdered, he'll be taken very, very, very seriously on that day. Jesus sees and judges to the furthest depths of our hearts. And when he comes again, it'll be in full power and full glory and full judgment for the earth. So let me ask as we close, how do you view the coming of Jesus, our church boss? Are you still waiting to take your spiritual life seriously when things aren't quite so busy? Do you kind of make whatever life choices you want and justify your behavior? Well, this is just the way I am. John responded to Jesus with urgency. The time is now to live for his return today. You say, but I know I have some more time, but you don't know that. And here's the thing, I don't think a lot of people realize, I'm convinced that God, when someone walks away and doesn't seek him, he allows their heart to harden. And you might come to a point someday where you don't seek God. You say, well, I'll seek him when I'm older, when I have more time, when my kids are out of the home, when I'm retired, or when my retirement is less active. And then all of a sudden you find you've lost any desire to seek God because he's allowed your own heart to be hardened. And so beware if you put it off. John saw an urgency to it. Do we? Do we have that same kind of urgency that he could return today? Would we be ready? See, we frequently do not treat as important what the Bible says is important. And Revelation, the whole book, is about the spiritual future in that unseen world. So worship of Jesus impacts all of life. Don't let the busy activities of life. Don't let your personal preferences distract your worship. Honor God with your life because the most important thing that you can do is worship God, worship Jesus. And if you want to understand how and why he's talking to these seven churches, we looked at this chapter to set up the language and the images that he will use 
for the seven churches in Revelation 2 through 3, those chapters. Let's pray. Lord God, help us to take our worship life seriously, and not just our worship life in this sanctuary, our worship life all week long. Do we worship you, God, with our life, with our words, with our focus and our attitudes when we're doing even mundane tasks? Do we do it for you as an act of worship? Show us, Lord, where we have kind of kept our life held back, areas that we hold and say, that's just who I am, I can't change. But your spirit can change us. Your spirit can take an acorn and split an extra large grave stone that's over a grave, then you can roll away the problems and things we think have us in captivity. Unbind us, Lord, because your spirit is at work in our heart. We pray in Jesus' name.